0: francoise Pelé en direct de Paris. Vous écoutez EE Times on air.
1: And I'm Brian Santo, EE Times editor in chief. This is your briefing for the week ending November 1st. In this episode, engineers are rarely featured in films, and when you do see engineers in a movie, they're almost always playing a bit role. This week, one of the rare films in which engineers are the heroes opened. It's the current war, and it's about the race between Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse to light up the world in the 1880s. Also, video has been captured the same way for more than 125 years, but modern electronics is making it possible to capture and display video in an entirely new way. We talk about the French company that's doing it. And in our third segment today, cars will get safer when they can talk to each other. Unfortunately, there's an argument about what language they should speak. That's coming up in a moment. But first, let me introduce you to...
2: Thomas Alva Edison. My boys and I caught in a jar
1: what before now was only flashed across the night sky.
2: The future is here.
1: Hello, I'm George Westinghouse.
2: <laughs> Nikola Tesla. I will be the greatest provider of electrical power in the world. Better than Edison. There's a contest between you. This is a battle for the
3: brightest minds of America. Today, the impossible becomes
1: possible. And the man that controls that current controls the future. I hope you brought your checkbooks. That's the promotional trailer from the new film, The Current War. Hollywood films traffic and hyperbole, but... The future actually was at stake. In 1879, Thomas Edison perfected the incandescent bulb and subsequently devised a means of distributing electricity. His intention was to provide electricity and illumination for the world, and to make a fortune doing it. His electrification system was based on direct current, or DC, and it worked well, which he demonstrated by lighting up Lower Manhattan. You couldn't push DC power very far down a wire, however, so his system required a power plant every few miles. That was technologically feasible, but George Westinghouse knew it was economically unrealistic. However, with an electrical distribution system based on alternating current, or AC, you could push power vast distances, and so require fewer generating plants. The problem was that while it was possible to use AC to illuminate a light bulb, Inventors could not figure out how to make a motor that worked with AC. Lighting was a nice business, but industrial usage of electricity had the potential to be very lucrative, and that meant driving motors. Edison had a lead in the market, but as the 1880s progressed, Westinghouse became more and more competitive, and the rivalry became not just antagonistic, but deadly. Part of the history of the rivalry includes the invention of the electric chair, and the founding of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. The competition was also central to the history of American finance in the 1880s and 1890s. The financial barons of the day were all involved, including, and perhaps especially, the richest man in the world at the time, J.P. Morgan. Westinghouse secured final advantage when he bought patents from Nikola Tesla, one of the world's great geniuses. The Westinghouse AC system was already cheaper than Edison's DC network's, But Tesla's technology made AC practical for all purposes, and that was decisive. The film's climax is at the 1893 World Columbian Fair in Chicago, the so-called White City, where the first Ferris wheel was built, Westinghouse dazzled, and Tesla demonstrated technologies it would take years for the world to understand and appreciate. Current War covers much of that history, mostly accurately, though a few liberties were taken to advance the story without getting bogged down with subplots or getting overburdened with a huge cast of characters that would have included some of the most prominent engineers, industrialists, and financiers of the era. I went to see the movie last weekend, and so did E.E. Times editor George Leopold. The two of us got on the line to discuss the film. So George, give us your capsule review of the movie.
2: Well, uh, The Current War is a uh, stunning picture, beautifully shot, designed, uh, uh, great attention to detail, Mm -hmm. just enough technology, I think, to make it credible without getting too far into the weeds, and um, very well written. I mean, I would uh, urge anybody who sees it to take a guess at the beginning. There's a shot, a long shot of Thomas Edison in the snow, and I... I guessed where he was. Me too. And it, and in the end, I, I was correct. But uh, anybody who does go to see the film, see if you can figure out where he is at the beginning.
1: Yes, that was a really cool shot. You're right. It was a beautiful movie. Um, I, I was really just knocked out by how visually stunning it is. At the beginning, there's a, the one of the... Opening scenes after the one you just mentioned, um, a, a bunch of uh, businessmen being taken out by train to Menlo Park in New Jersey, which at the time uh, looked to be uh, like nothing more than a couple of houses in a swamp. Right. In in the greater tri-state area of New York City. Right, where? right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, the guy with the lantern that's leading them to where he wants them to go turns off the lantern it's like pitch dark some fog rolling around and edison mud everywhere yeah yeah mud everywhere squishing lots of squishing sounds on the soundtrack and and edison lights up this a couple of concentric rings of light bulbs uh, illuminating the whole area and gentlemen i hope you brought your checkbooks <laughs> yeah a, which is in the trailer right right fun and uh gorgeous just gorgeous scene
2: yeah and it gives you and it gives you some quick insight into um Edison's thinking how he operated uh, always practical always chasing money always hitting JP Morgan up for cash cuz he needs money for the next invention and the invention after that and the one 6 months down the road so that was, that was portrayed very well. This this immense amount of innovation at the end of the 19th century in America, this is sort of a—it sort of encapsulates this period. It's just unbelievable technological innovation. And you got him, you got George Westinghouse in Pittsburgh, and then you've got this guy, Nikola Tesla, who's, uh, who's the third actor in this play.
1: Right. What— It's fascinating to me is the movie, you know, covers um, the um, competition between Edison um, and Edison Electric and Westinghouse uh, to electrify the nation. And uh, the person who has the key uh, for success is Tesla. Um, Edison kind of alienates Tesla. Tesla, and uh, he floats around for a while until Westinghouse finally finds him. Uh, The story today, I think uh, a lot of engineers are familiar with it. There are a lot of, uh, um, not only Tesla enthusiasts, they're like fanboys. There's this crazy, almost cult of Tesla these days. And Edison is well known as, uh, as, as one of America's greatest geniuses. Um, You have these two geniuses involved, and often the story involves those two. And the third guy is Westinghouse, and not often given a lot of credit in the story of this period of extraordinary innovation, but the movie actually gives him a lot of screen time.
2: Right, yeah. So he's the proponent of alternating current uh, Mm -hmm. and makes this great pitch to his investors to get the contract for the Chicago World's Fair where he just says, well, you'll get more voltage for less money. Thank you, gentlemen. And that was the end of his pitch. And he won. That was basically the Chicago World's Fair, the Columbia Exposition, I guess it was called 1893. That was sort of the the denouement. This is where – uh, Westinghouse and his his now partner Tesla basically win the current war over Thomas Edison, who, as the film shows quickly, moves on to other things. But I, I thought that one really great scene that, that engineers would appreciate was – during the exhibition, um, Westinghouse is shown watching an Asian woman, I think she was Japanese, doing calligraphy. Mm-hmm. And Edison walks up and asks if he's enjoying the show. So finally, after you know probably a decade of beating the hell out of each other, they have this talk. And uh, Westinghouse asks, and he's, he's quite sincere about it, he said, what did it feel like? And Edison's not sure, what do you mean? Just what did it feel like when you figured out the incandescent bulb? Yeah. And Edison talks about how they tried different materials and nothing worked. And one night they tried again. They didn't expect much to happen. And, and they waited an hour and it was still burning. And they waited six hours and they started cheering. And they waited 12 hours and it was still lit. And after 13 hours it popped. And, and th- that was that was a nice moment. You know, what, it, what is invention about? What is innovation about? It's about hard work and trying things until, and failing until you get it right. Beautiful scene.
1: Well, that's – it is a beautiful scene, but that's the, that's the fun thing about the Edison versus Tesla thing because um, what, uh, what Westinghouse needed for his AC system was a motor. He could, he could get the electricity out there, but he needed to drive uh, industrial machines with them. Right, so he needed a motor, and that's what one one of Tesla's great innovations yeah. was the the polyphase motor. And they keep asking. There's a couple of great scenes where they keep asking Tesla, "So, you, so you built this thing?" He goes, "No. Why would I build this?" It's like, "Well, to find out if it works." He goes, "No, I built it in my head. It's mm-hmm, perfect." Mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> and that was always the the dichotomy in invention is encapsulated in those two. Um, great personalities edison who will plod away innovation is uh 95% perspiration 5% inspiration right and and, and tesla is like you go to fundamental principles and it'll work
2: yeah he kept he kept saying you're not thinking long term well right unfortunately the investors don't think long term they think short term but yeah that's yeah. that was the nice contrast between sort of the uh, the dreamy tesla and the very literally nuts and bolts, Edison, so that was well done as as well, I think, yeah,
1: and we keep bringing up a couple of things here uh, in in our discussion so far about the investors about going to to uh, J P Morgan uh, the opening line from Edison, gentlemen, where I hope you brought your checkbooks and the final win by Westinghouse, I can do this cheaper it's as much about finance and business as it is about the technology. It's about both and and the two are coupled. And what I loved about the movie was that Westinghouse is featured in part because although he may not be as well known today for his efforts in that, in that current war, he was the most ethical business among them all. Uh, He's most ethical businessman and, and the movie I think rewards him for that, as does American commerce at the end when they give him the contract.
2: Yeah. And in terms of casting, I think Michael Shannon as as George Westinghouse will probably get an Oscar name and nomination. He, he should if he doesn't. But the, yeah, the other line I recall was when uh, Tesla's investors basically come and take his patents and he's penniless again. And first they refer to him as just an immigrant. And then I think the investor says, it's not about current,
1: it's about currency. So that, that sort of sums it up right there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, before we uh, we started recording this, uh, we, we were talking a little bit in preparation. And you mentioned something about the score. So I, I, I'll set this up by, and I'll ask you about that in a moment. I'll set this up by mentioning that that Morse code, Um has uh is a running theme throughout the film. Um, Edison famously nicknamed his two kids Dot and Dash, um, and uh, the three communicate in Morse code from time to time throughout the movie, um, and You mentioned something about the soundtrack and I want to let you bring it up yourself. Yeah.
2: I just, uh, this this music and soundtracks are really fundamental to sort of the look and feel of a, of a quality film. And I sensed uh, that there was this sort of repetitive sound within the soundtrack that evoked Morse code. I think that's what the, uh, whoever did the score uh, I think that's what they were after. And I think it, added a nice layer a nice texture to the film as well that makes it really worth seeing. I I give it a thumbs up. I think it was a, a really well done movie.
1: Yeah, uh that the soundtrack was a bit of subtle genius, absolutely fantastic. Um the flick I thought had um it didn't beat you over the head with history, but they make sure that they that a lot of really nice touches were in there all the time. The Ferris wheel at the 1893 exposition that was the very first ferris wheel steel was kind of new and the previous exposition one of the previous expositions was in paris and they built the eiffel tower a kind of a modern wonder of the world with the newest construction materials and the americans decided to one-up them with a revolving steel structure um you know, and they don't beat you over the head out of it, but there's a beautiful shot of that Ferris wheel over the over the White City, the exposition uh, center in Chicago. Just a lot of neat details.
2: Right. And I, I think there was a, a remark about early marketing. I, th- I think I recall Edison's assistant saying, you know, why would you go to all these places and try and pitch direct current when they're all going to be together in Chicago in one place and you can sell it there? And then he goes in and makes his, his hour-long pitch compared to George Westinghouse's about two or three minutes.
1: Uh, by the way, the hour-long pitch uh, only takes a few seconds in the movie. You don't actually have to right. sit through it. An- <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, noted, yes. Yeah. So so overall, um, m- pretty accurate. Um, maybe some of the dialogue was obviously a little modern, uh, but, uh, but still, uh, I-, I think true to the characters um the acting was phenomenal it's a gorgeous movie um, my final word on it is i would recommend that anybody go see it not just engineers i agree my wife loved it too uh mine too yeah so george thanks uh we'll uh, be looking forward to reading your uh review in the pages of eetimes.com good to be with you brian thanks I think we can safely say that's two thumbs up. So was the future at stake? It still is. More and more devices rely on electricity every day. The automotive industry is vast, lucrative, utterly dependent on energy, and has only just embarked on shifting its energy source to electricity. The process of electrification is still ongoing. It's not much of a coincidence that Westinghouse and General Electric, which Edison Electric was folded into, are still going concerns more than 125 years later. When Thomas Edison loses to Westinghouse in the current war, he's shown moving on to a new idea, motion pictures. In 1893, he would invent a device he called the kinetograph. It was one of the first movie cameras, along with the cinematograph developed by Auguste and Louis Lumiere in France. Ever since then, film and video have been captured and shown in pretty much the same fashion. A camera is used to capture a sequence of still images, or frames, 24 frames per second, on translucent movie film. To view the motion picture, those frames are put in sequence on a reel, and the reel advances them across the aperture of a projector. The light in the projector flickers on and off 24 times a second, illuminating each frame as it goes by. It's fast enough to trick the eye into seeing uninterrupted motion, and that's pretty much how film and TV have worked for years. In the 1980s, when media began to get captured using digital technology, an interesting idea was proposed and adopted as a key element of saving system resources. Video compression. What if you sent instructions to the playback device that only included what changed from frame to frame? That led to another realization. Wouldn't it be more efficient to not just play back video using that approach, but to capture it that way too? One of the new companies doing research into that method is French, appropriately enough, given the role played by the Lumiere brothers at the birth of the motion picture photography industry. E.E. Times editor Anne-Francoise Pellet has been tracking the company, called Prophecy. International editor Junko Yoshida called her to talk to her about it.
0: Hi, Anne-Francoise. How are you today? Hi, Junko. I'm doing
3: good. How about you? Not too bad. Today, I want to talk about French startup, Prophecy. E.E. E. Times has covered the company several times over the years,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
3: but I know that you picked up the ball and you've been writing about the prophecy for the, um, I don't know, a couple of times in the last few weeks. So first, tell us what they do, what the company does, and what's the latest news from them?
0: Oh Well, they have an interesting technology Um It is bio-inspired in the sense that it's uh, inspired by human vision. It develops neuromorphic sensors that mimic the eye and machine learning algorithms that mimic the brain. So you asked me uh, why they made the news recently, uh, for two reasons. One is techno and the other one is business. Um, Well, actually uh, about a month ago, they announced their uh, event based vision sensor available in an industry standard package and ready for mass prediction. So that's a big deal for them. And um, this week, uh, that's the business side, um, they raised another $28 million um, to accelerate the development and deployment of their solutions on different markets, such as uh, industrial, automotive, and um, Internet of Things.
3: Okay, so let's step back. So up until now, mm-hmm. Prophecy didn't have a chip in mass production.
0: No, that's that's what's really new, and uh, actually, it took some time to develop. It it is the result of thirty five years of development, and um, and that's the that's the thirty five years you're talking about, not the
3: chip, you're talking about the basic foundational a, a technology. Technology, technology uh, It, technology, uh, it,
0: right? it yeah. found roots uh, in the Institute and Institute of de la Vision in Paris. And um, so, since it was a breakthrough technology, a disruptive technology, they really had to uh, educate and uh, convince. So they're getting there, and um, and their chip is ready, uh, is going to mass production. So it, it's it's really important, uh, an important milestone for the company. I see.
3: Okay. So in your latest story this week, um, you inferred that Prophecy's neuromorphic engineering narrative has been gaining traction among investors. Please explain.
0: Well, it is very true. Um, As we said, since it was totally new, the company had to um, evangelize uh, the the industry. and show that uh, it opens new possibilities in imaging technology. Uh, it promises to improve devices' ability to sense the environment and make wiser decisions in real time. Okay, so ha, step back, step back. So when you say that uh, event-based, um,
3: event-driven uh, processing, how is it different from the um, what we... Normally, no. In other words, when we watch television, when we see video, it's 30 frames per second, right? So, But this is not a frame-based technology, correct? Yeah.
0: Exactly. That's totally, um, you're totally right. Um, Prophecy technology, as I said, mimics the eye, captures only the most useful and relevant events in a scene. That's how it is different from um, frame-based systems. This allows much lower power reduction, um, latency, and data processing compared to, as we said, the traditional base uh, frame-based systems.
3: So it took a while for the industry to embrace the idea. Industry, which has been used to, you know, used to uh, using the frame-based technology. That's interesting. So, so this is so the basic technology, um, as you described, it's uh, what the um, academics would call neuromorphic computing. And uh, we all know that the, its basic concept is as old as the days of Carver Mead back in 1980s, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I seem to recall you also did a story about the neuromorphic engineering uh, by talking to one of the uh, analysts at Yole Development recently. So tell us why neuromorphic is Making a comeback now.
0: Well, you could have asked me um, the question differently why did it take so long? Um, well, it is the story of artificial intelligence. Well, as you know, I interviewed Pierre Combu, a YOL analyst, um, not that long ago. And in the interview, he reminded me that um, most current deep learning implementation techniques rely on Moore's Law. It is working fine today. That's for sure. Um, But deep learning evolves and computing power requirement accelerates. The data load is increasing faster than Moore's law and the data overflow makes current memory technologies a limiting factor. Moore's law has been slowing down and it's not far from hitting a wall. Um, So many in the industry, and Kambu is one of them, believe it won't be able to sustain deep learning progress. Um, It will even fail, that's what he said, uh, if it continues to be implemented the way it is today. Um, So Kambu and many others go for the neuromorphic approach. They think uh, it allows uh, greater efficiencies and enables uh, a host of AI applications. So they think it's the way to go. You know,
3: this is actually a very provocative statement. It is, by it is. The old development's uh, Kambu, saying that deep learning will fail, mm-hmm. right, if we keep doing what we're doing. But I think neuromorphic had the best friend now because it has become, in his opinion, neuromorphic computing has become the best friend for artificial intelligence.
0: Exactly. Um in his view, it promises better AI, better um, AI applications. Um, he even said, we can now dream of what we couldn't before dream about, AI-based applications. So he is looking very far ahead. Um,
3: right. Yep. Can, can you give me some examples of um, what what he's dreaming about?
0: Well, it could be in the autonomous car. The way we, we picture it today, um, it won't be possible uh, unless we go towards, um, uh, unless we adopt this technology. That's one example um, for power requirements, for instance.
3: Coming back to where we are now, um, in which market segments does Prophecy believe their neuromorphic sensing chip will grow?
0: Well, it is gaining adoption in industrial automation and internet. systems such as robotic inspection equipment um, monitoring and surveillance devices and um, in the near future um, neuromorphic image sensors uh, will pay their way in more mainstream applications that's what Luca Vere, the CEO said um, so he was thinking of um, automotive and um, also the internet of things um, for automotive um, it he, what he, he pictures is the ability to understand the outside environment of the car and send alerts and enable the car to stop whenever it encounters an uh, obstacle and uh, in the internet of things um, he was um, mentioning AR and VR applications but also uh, uh, industrial consumer robotic applications such as drone drones vacuum cleaners so it's it's really it's really broad um, so There are many applications that are possible.
3: Right. But right now, that they're not going for that because they're waiting for their chips to get even smaller. Is that correct?
0: Exactly. They're, they have a problem of size um, right now with their third generation. So thanks to the fundraising, they'll be able to... Uh, develop, go uh, faster on the deployment on the industrialization of their fourth generation. And this fourth generation is 10 times smaller and for that reason, it will be able to be used for um, the automotive and in and consumer applications.
3: When are they thinking about the fourth generation to come then?
0: Next year, max, mass prediction next year. Wow. That's what they said. That's pretty fast. Yeah, it's quite Interesting. fast. Interesting. Yep. All they're, right. they're actually already working on it.
3: Okay. Yep. Well, thank you very much, Anne-Francoise. It was uh, very educational, and uh, we'll talk with you soon. Thank you, Junko.
1: So you can expect us to check in with Prophecy again sometime in 2020, if not before. The auto industry is getting split every which way recently. For example, the Trump administration wants to relax the federal goals that have been set to improve fuel economy. The goals are ambitious and will save energy and reduce pollution, but automakers will be challenged to meet them. The state of California, by itself one of the biggest automobile markets in the world, said it intended to mandate conformance to the stricter standards. Honda and Ford support California. But General Motors, Fiat Chrysler, and Toyota have agreed with the Trump administration. That's one thing. There's also a technological battle brewing among different automotive factions that will affect vehicle safety. Assisted driving can be improved in many different ways if cars can talk to each other. That's vehicle-to-vehicle or V-to-V. Associated improvements can come when cars can talk to other systems that monitor roads and traffic. That's vehicle-to-other systems or V-to-X. The auto industry has spent a lot of time and money over the last 15 years to develop a V2X communication system called Dedicated Short-Range Communications, or DSRC. It works, it's been proven safe, and it's ready to go right now. The wireless communications industry has literally included V2X communications as a use case in its 5G standards, and 5G proponents have been lobbying furiously to get 5G V2X adopted. Regulatory agencies, especially those in Europe, have gone back and forth on the subject and automakers are beginning to take sides. On the one hand, you have Volkswagen recently announcing it will build DSRC into its golf cars in an upcoming model year. Also reportedly in the DSRC camp are GM, Toyota, Volvo, NXP. In the 5G camp are reportedly BMW, Demler, and Ford, backed by Intel, Qualcomm, Huawei, and Samsung all supporters of 5G technology. 5G V2X could be a fine alternative, but there's a catch. And here's NXP CTO Lars Rieger to tell us what it is. 5G is not ready. This thing right. is not going to come. I mean, we can, yeah. can start talking again now for 10 years until people trust the technology and so on. It
2: is cheaper. All these arguments. Yeah. In the end, 5G is not the alternative. How long will it take if enough cars have 5G systems on board.
1: Now, granted, NXP is in the DSRC camp, but Rieger said he's technology agnostic. His point of view is, do DSRC now because it's ready, and if you need 5G later when it's finally ready too, just add it, no problem. EE Times editor Junko Yoshida has been following the issue. So Junko, I want to have you start out by explaining... Uh, what the two uh, competing options are. Uh, First, talk to us about what uh, DSRC is.
3: Okay, DSRC is really a variant of Wi-Fi technology. It's actually standardized under IEEE 802.11p, it's called. And it's been uh, standardized and uh, it's been used. Uh, It's been not just trials, but it's gone through the safety tests, and so forth. It's been ready for at least the last 15 years, I should say. Meanwhile, another alternative for this vehicle-to-infrastructure and vehicle-to-vehicle communication is the use of cellular technology. And uh, 5G guys, especially 5G, once we move to 5G, 5G actually has the um, mandate that uh, 5G is not going to be just broadband. They want to do Internet of uh, Things. They want to do automotive. So automotive is one of the pillars that they are pushing as a new application for 5G. So now 5G wants to do what DRC was, um, was designed to do. So they're coming in late and they want to take the and
1: you know, just There's part, no problem with technological competition as far as you and I are concerned. The problem comes with the readiness, right? That's the argument here. We've had DSRC has been available for 15 years. It's proven. We know it works. 5G doesn't really exist yet. I mean, it's beginning to be rolled out, but not anywhere near it's it'll it'll be years before it's close enough to cover all roadways. That's correct. Right. That's correct. But now, but now the kind of the the cellular proponents have kind of moved the goalposts a little bit. They're talking about four G extended and then moving to five G. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. So four G 4G extend four G e four G extended. Uh, that's not really been tested for vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to infrastructure. It has been tested for V to X, much has it
3: not, yeah, not not to the extent of the rigorous uh, uh, safety testing. No, mm-hmm. because they haven't had the uh, enough testing equipment or chips available yet, just yet. And you know, it's it's it. But but Brian, this is not just about the redness. Well, redness also means what about the cost, right? Mm-hmm. The cost of five G,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, this is not about just putting 5G into the in-vehicle telematics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, that's important. Uh, DSRC will do the same thing. Uh, The issue is that if you want your vehicle to talk to the infrastructure, we are talking about putting that that wireless technology, not just in vehicles, but every traffic light, every construction sign, Mm -hmm. every roadside unit, that's a huge amount of investment. Of course, the SRC also has to do that. But the SRC has come to the point that they claim, the, the SRC promoters claim that it's much cheaper compared to hundreds of dollars that, you know, that currently requires for 5G.
1: I don't think that, uh, um, I can't see if they're going to be, if the cellular network operators are going to be deploying all of that technology it makes no economic sense for them to do it twice. Once to get the 4G up on the poles and the signs and other you know roadside base stations, and then to go back and upgrade it all with 5G. It makes no economic sense to me, for starters.
3: Right. But they're not saying that they're going to do it twice. You know, they, 4G is just a... Sort of their way of saying, "Oh, you know, if you use four G, you can you can do this now." But really, their ultimate goal is to do this with five G, not four G.
1: Right. I'm, I got I got to tell you, I'm a little confused about the uh, the four G argument. If four G was capable of supporting V to X, wouldn't they already be doing it? Four G has been around for. 8, 10, 12 years, something like that, right?
3: Yeah, but 4G was wasn't designed for this uh the, the for, for the vehicle to be a vehicle communication. That right. wasn't part of the design. Exactly. Right. Yeah.
1: So one of the things we're talking about is uh getting the infrastructure available. Um DSRC yep. infrastructure is still necessary. Uh 5G infrastructure is still necessary, but the, the interesting thing about your article this week is that uh, Volkswagen is going to put DSRC in its Gulf, uh, a very popular uh, car, and they don't necessarily need a lot of roadside infrastructure to get the benefits. They need uh, a critical mass of vehicles On the road. So if they're talking, if you've got a bunch of golfs in a downtown area, they can talk to each other and get the benefits of you know get the safety benefits that are inherent in dsrc is that right
3: exactly v to v yeah that's right but you know it's it, it doesn't you, you, i think well, I have to correct you one thing there uh-huh. that the uh, dsrc does require the investment in the uh, infrastructure as well mm-hmm. but the 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 point about the uh, volkswagen is that apparently in germany um i was told volkswagen vw actually owns every second or third car on ger- German roads. So if Volkswagen is, is really serious about the based v V2X, that means we would suddenly have this, what they call, network effect. Mm-hmm. You know, the Metcalf oh. network effect theory that uh, if you actually come to the uh, certain point, the, the tipping point, mm-hmm. that if... Even actually, twenty to uh, you know, twenty percent of the car is equipped with this. Um, you can actually start talking among themselves, and that will guide you to the safer uh, road information. That mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the, 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 trans, the uh, traffic jam is coming up, or yeah, there's more communication going on among cars.
1: Right. Even if it's just, I'm here, you're there. We should not hit each other. Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> Even something as simple as that makes things more safe. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Very fascinating. Um, anything about this subject that we haven't talked about? Uh, what should we expect coming up next? Well,
3: I think I, we need to bring up the issue of SIM card. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 5G, if you want to bring in 5G in your car, mm-hmm. your car has to be fitted with 5G SIM card. Who is going to pay for that, right? Because there's no. This is the same argument for IoT. You know, with the IoT, there's a LoRa and all those other IoTs. uh, You know, Sigfox out there. But the the weakness of the uh, NB IoT cellular based based IoT is that who is going to pay for the five G SIM card, right? And yeah, the, con- the
1: connectivity service, right? Yeah, right.
3: right. So, the, it's, uh, you know, of course, the car companies will foot the bill to put the 5G SIM card inside the car. The issue is this is a perfect opportunity for mobile network operators to get another uh, platform for revenue stream. In other words, they are waiting for you and I, to use more 5G apps inside the vehicle so that they can actually charge you extra 5G monthly payment uh, just for inside use. And V2X really started as a, as a safety um, uh, feature. And um, okay, the five G guys may say, "Well, for V two X, we'll make it free." All right, but as as long as we put the five G SIM card inside the car, that would create an opportunity for mobile uh, network operators to charge us more for other for other five G applications. In other words, uh, you the consumers will. Um, you know, taken hostages for 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 the uh, for the five G based services inside the car. I already pay for five G, for example, for my mobile phone. Now we'll pay. will be asked to pay double for the five uh, G enabled uh, vehicle.
1: So DSRC is all about safety and safety only, and five G yep. is about more revenue streams. A, kind of a trojan a trojan horse into your car.
3: Exactly. That's a good word. That's a good way to explain it.
1: Crafty, huh?
3: Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, this is really not much the technology issue at, the, at this point because uh, I think you guys really know this is the way to uh, way for that. You know, this is a way to make more money, and so, we're just following right into it.
1: So, some of the car ma- manufacturers like Volkswagen have are already opting for DSRC. They've got it. It works. They're happy with it. Other automakers, there's another axis that's um, that's aligned with the you know four or five other automobile companies, uh, along with Intel and Qualcomm, a couple of the backers of five G, are all backing five G. How much of a conspiracy do we want to discuss here? Do we suppose that the automakers that are aligning are with 5G are thinking of getting a, some of that revenue stream? <laughs> Let's set
3: aside the uh, chip companies for now. Okay. Let's just focus on the automotive companies. Right. What I'm seeing is the clear split between DSRC versus 5G. Yeah. Uh, Volkswagen is putting DSRC in the mid- to low-end cars. Uh-huh. It's a volume car, right? Right, right, right. While BMW wants to portray itself, it's a luxury car. And so it perfectly makes sense to put 5G in there because, oh. you know, dear customers, if you buy BMW, of course, we'll give you 5G, right? right. So it's, it is it is that marketing, uh, you know, to uh two diverging marketing interests by automotive companies
1: yeah well i mean but f- for instance ford is in the uh is in the 5g camp is that right right and they're but there are they trucks. don't
3: really have the cars they don't have cars yet but they have Brian. trucks.
1: they don't they, they have trucks <laughs> though right I mean yeah. they're, they're, the luxury the luxury sale doesn't really i don't know if the luxury sale uh is a is the appropriate way to look at that I don't know yeah because Maybe. that doesn't
3: create the network network uh, effect
1: hmm. right true, We're talking true. we' talking
3: we, about we we need a mass volume right to to you know so like you and I uh, have a mobile phone well if you didn't have a mobile phone I can talk to you right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is the same idea it's telephone it's a basic telephone idea if the other person doesn't have a telephone how, how do we talk to each other
1: so what do you think is going to happen next?
3: Um, I think they will duke it out in the market. Yeah. There had been a lot of uh, political uh, infights, uh, upheavals have been going on, especially in Europe. Uh, let's set aside the US. That's a whole different kettle fish. But in <laughs> Europe, that there have been a lot of upheavals. But I think what made it very clear by this uh, Volkswagen's announcement is that Germany will be split. Uh, BMW versus uh, VW or we should say uh 5G versus uh, DSRC that's what they they will they they will they, I think it's it's up to the consumers which cars they, they they choose and more cars come with the DSRC DSRC will win
1: so we can expect you a couple more articles about this from you in the future is that what you're telling us definitely well <laughs> the yeah definitely yes
3: <laughs> I'm actually, getting tired of writing about this, but that's okay. That's another story.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Junko.
3: Okay, thanks.
1: Junko's story is called VW Pits Its New Gulf Against the 5G Lobby, and you can find it on eetimes.com. We've had plenty of engineering history in this episode, but you people are just insatiable. Fine, here goes. On October 30th, 1938, one of the most famous radio events in history was broadcast. Orson Welles directed a production of The War of the Worlds. Reports of mass hysteria among New Jersey residents freaking out over news of a Martian invasion were probably overblown, but there's no question a few people got a decent pre-Halloween scare. And on October 29, 1969, the first message ever sent over what would later become called the Internet was sent and received. It was sent from a computer on the campus of UCLA to another computer 400 miles north at SRI. The two were among the first nodes on DARPAnet. This is former UCLA professor and Internet Hall of Fame member Leonard Kleinrock talking about that first message. It's in a video recorded by the UCLA Daily Bruin in 2016. So what was the first message ever on the internet? Lo! As in, lo and behold! couldn't have planned a more powerful, more prophetic, more succinct message than low. It wasn't planned, of course. They were trying to transmit the word login, but the system crashed before they could get to the third letter. Kleinrock also appears in Werner Herzog's documentary on the internet. Herzog adopted Kleinrock's line, lo and behold, as the name of his film. That's also one we recommend. That's your weekly briefing for the week ending November 1st. This podcast is produced by AspenCore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and video. Check in with us next Friday for a new edition of EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santo.